This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast. And today, we are so fortunate, we're in the world headquarters of Quist Valuation with the president, Shina Culberson. Shina, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, tell us a bit about your business and who you serve. So we are a business valuation firm. Many people don't know what that means. And so to make it very simple, what we do is we work with primarily privately held companies and or family-owned businesses and help them understand if they were to go out and sell their company, what could they sell their company for? What is the dollar value of their company? We work, like I said, with mostly privately held companies and they can range anywhere from $2 million in revenue to $1 billion in revenue. We really believe that looking at a broad breadth of clients across various life cycles makes us better at what we do. It provides us context when we look at different companies and different industries. Folks would say, what makes you qualified to go out and do this? What brought you to business valuation? To be a qualified business appraiser. And it's Business valuation experts also are called business appraisers. There is a credentialing involved. I personally hold the Chartered Financial Analyst designation, which I don't know if you're familiar with, is quite a rigorous designation to attain. And we here at Quiz actually support all of our analysts receiving that designation. We hold it in the highest regard. We think it stands out amongst many, many different designations within the industry. But to be qualified, I think you need to work with somebody who has experience where this is something that they are doing on a full-time basis. So I have many, many friends who are CPAs. They're very good with numbers, obviously, like we are, but they're not necessarily qualified to do business valuation. There's different financial theory and techniques involved. So finding someone where they're doing business valuation as their full-time practice would be an important qualifier for someone to be. Well, the understatement was that the CFA is a hard thing to get. <laughs> it's a very narrow funnel and very few people come out the other end in a CFA. And then you were also doing, I think for a major investment firm, you were doing credit analysis, I believe, in your previous life. I've been an analyst my entire career. I started, I graduated from college with an economics, as an economics major. I actually had an Asian studies minor. I spoke Japanese. I lived in Japan for a little while. And so my first job was at a Japanese bank in Los Angeles. So I started out as a commercial banker. I probably was one of the last people to go through a formal credit training program sponsored by a commercial bank. And then I moved into asset management with Charles Schwab Investment Management. And I, was, I cover the international markets and did credit research for them. And that was a really fascinating time because I covered financial institutions. So I was there when the euro was launched. And I was in Europe talking with the central bank, talking about lender of last resort across Europe. I was around when there was the Russian ruble crisis. The Japanese economy was tanking. And it was, so it was a really fascinating time when I was covering the international markets at Charles Schwab. And then from there, I did a little bit, I did a short stint at, in mortgage banking. And then I finally found my way here at, to Quist. I think about the qualifications to understand business. 
And clearly the credit side matters when you look at balance sheets. And for you, how typically when a potential client comes to talk to you about engaging your service, what are the typical one or two reasons why business owner would contact you for your service? So business owners, ultimately at the end of the day, business owners have this idea of some sort of ownership transition. It can look many different ways. If you take a startup company, they are also dealing with ownership allocation, right? So they've got the founders of that startup company, they've got venture capital investment, and so they have preferred shareholders. They're also working with retaining employees. So they're looking at issuing them maybe some options. So all that has to do with capital structure, ownership structure, ownership transition. So for a startup company, people would, business owners would come to us primarily for that stock option program or to raise capital. Other business owners might come to us because they're doing some complex tax and estate planning work, which again is about ownership transition at their death. But getting those plans set up today to create efficiencies for wealth transfer, hopefully many, many, many years and decades down the line when their estate passes on to the next generation. And then the other reason a lot of business owners work with us is because they're trying to bring in a management team into the ownership structure or an identified key employee that they want to retain and they want a mechanism for bringing them into the ownership structure and incentivizing them to eventually take over the business so they can retire. Had a little exposure in the exit space. And when you go do a deep dive in a company and by and large, when you're done, where everything's at, if you were looking at the companies that you've done it for, and you look at them again in one or two years after you've done it, what are the biggest changes or transformations you see in that company after the owner has the analysis done? That's a great question. When we talk with business owners, our analysis, we focus on six business value drivers, but I will tell you that it really comes down to about three that I believe are easy to accomplish tasks that a business owner can do for their company. So when business owner asks me, Shino, what are the three simplest things I can do for my business to drive value? One would be, and this sounds silly, but do all of your management team's members have clear job descriptions and do they understand their job description and are their actions and objectives tied to some sort of financial reward and metric? So there's a clear link between what they're doing and how they're going to get going to be rewarded. Sounds simple. Not very few companies actually have a very clear link about job descriptions and financial reward. Because what happens, we get into our business, we start wearing lots of different hats. We start picking up tasks and duties that really weren't part of our position, but we're doing them anyways. And then these the job descriptions fall stale very, very quickly. So it's an easy thing to do. And it's one of the things that creates clear objectives and outcomes for an organization and especially a management team. So that's one simple thing that we advise business owners to do. The other thing would be to, we ask them about their systems and processes and how they're documented. Because how can a business owner or company continue to create these repeatable processes 
to have a repeatable revenue stream. And so can they, do they have those systems and processes in place to have a guaranteed sort of standard of quality of service or product? Do they have great visibility into their revenue? And it usually stems from, again, writing down systems and processes and making sure the entire company and employees and staff understand what those are. Not always fun to do, but necessary. So to create that predictable outcome. And when it comes to valuation, predictable cash flow streams is highly important to value. And then the third area that we talk with business owners about is, and this may sound out of the box a little bit, but is innovation. And what do they do to continually innovate within their organization? I'm a professional service firm. I think many of my colleagues who, are, who run professional service organizations like law firms, accounting firms, think, well, what's to innovate? We provide this service. But as you know, people, especially millennials, they want to receive these services in different ways. And Nobody probably knows this more than the wealth advisory industry these days. But having this kind of culture of innovation and how do you keep things fresh and making sure that you've got a culture of delivering systems and delivering services and products in the way that clients and customers want to see them and receive them is important. So we talk about innovation, which is not normally what you might think about when talking about valuation. But we want to see how the company is thinking about future strategies and business objectives. Let's dive into that one for just a minute. For the listener out there, there's three things they can do right now. They heard it here. They can go through. And the thing that's, they go, well, why would I want to do that? Is because the potential buyer is going to look at those things. You either have them or you don't. And if you have them, good for you. And if you don't, your company's worth less. Pretty much straight up. And so in the innovation side, so let's say you talk to good old Mr. Smith at company ABC and said, you don't have a structure or a history of innovation, here are the one or two things I would recommend you start trying to do to create the culture of innovation. What would you tell them? I would say, we'll start with the customer in mind, right? So most firms don't have a mechanism for actually surveying their customers and knowing if they're satisfied, what would they like to see differently? Not that you have to address every customer comment, but you can probably start seeing trends about what your customers want to see from your product or service. And that creates opportunity or and or innovation within the organization. So it really starts with the customer and it probably starts with just do you have a way to regularly talk to your customers, understand how satisfied they are and what would they want to see differently from your organization? Survey would be simple. Survey monkey would be simple. And you don't always have the challenge is you don't always have customers that are willing to fill out the survey. Well, and the other part too, and we were talking this before the show, you have a series of customers and each one has a different idea of what you should do. And you go, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> you go, which one is the pearl? Amidst that, but I think about you, we've heard Blue Ocean Strategy, and for the folks that haven't read it that are trying to innovate, that's a good place to start. Right. And I think about as you're talking to businesses where it says quiz valuation on the nameplate, the reality is it's a whole lot more than that and what you guys offer. It's just not valuation. It's advice and within the business and how to operate and what to do to polish up the balance sheet. And I think for many business owners, what would you say to the business owner that says, 
I'm so stinking busy, I don't have time to gather all this stuff up to have evaluation because I already know what it's worth. <laughs> so I think that's a great question. And it's one of the reasons why we drive our valuation process in a highly systemized way. I think it can feel very overwhelming for business owners if they say, okay, how long, Shina, will it take for me to go from the beginning to the end of evaluation process where I can have a report in my hand? Well, for us, that can be anywhere between six and eight weeks. But my goal is to break that 68 week down into one week sprints so that they can understand in each week what sprint is happening and where their time is needed. And when I break it down that way, they realize, oh, you really need me in week one, week three, and week six. You're doing your internal process in week two, week four, week five. And when we can break the process down into sprints like that, and they see where what side of the court the ball is sitting at, they realize it really doesn't take that much of their time to perform a business valuation. And hopefully, I guess this would be another good tip for any business, hopefully they already have all their documents well organized where they can find them. That would be kind of a basic management of the company. A good management of a company is have all your documents in order. So hopefully that first part of just gathering documents really isn't that onerous because they're already... That sounds simple. Organized. <laughs> but not necessarily true. I mean, you get so busy as a business owner doing what you do. You do. And cash flow and customers and family and all the other things that takes up your life. And you think about, I'm not sure I have time to carve that out. And, you know, and it's probably too much to talk about here, but the difference between average, below average and best in class is an enormous difference on the company valuation. And for you, we were talking about before that when you get done with the evaluation, you can say, here are things that you can do and here's how, why it matters. And you can change the trajectory of the potential sell price. That's right. We actually changed the vision and mission of our company it's been about, I want to say, four years ago, five years ago. When I first started at the organization here at Quist, we really, there was a prideful culture around being the smartest person in the room, being technical experts at what we did. And we are technical experts at what we do. But my perspective is we were making ourselves feel really good by speaking a lot of technical lingo to business owners. And it really didn't serve the business owner. So when I came in and became an owner of the company, started running the day-to-day -day operations of the company, I really was dedicated to changing how we spoke to business owners and providing them information in tangible, actionable ways so they can take the information that we provided. I mean, we sit down with management teams for hours, two hours, three hours at a time. We have so much information and insight. So to be able to deliver that back to business owners and give them actionable items at the end of the day to drive value higher in the company, be able to make better decisions and drive performance, that was how we changed the vision and mission of the company. And so we changed how we wrote the reports. We changed what information we brought to the first page versus the last page. And we got away from this idea of we need to be the smartest people in the room. We don't need to be the smartest people in the room in terms of proving it to make someone else feel, quite frankly, we really need to elevate the business owner and give them the actionable item that they need 
for their company. You know, I think you bought this company 11 years ago. Is that right? That's right. And so, you know, you well, no, that's, I started the company 11 years ago and I bought the company in 2012. Okay. So you decided to change the nature of the deliverable to where it's actionable. And you say, I'm thinking about your thought process and what was going through your mind. It says, you know what? When I can, I'm going to take and change how we talk to the customer. What was that like? What drove you to that thought process? To be honest, frustration. Frustration because I just described we have a six to eight week process. We sit down with management teams for one, two, three hours at a time. We take in a lot of information. We put a lot of hard work into this deliverable for the client. And we would write this 100-page report of which a CEO would go to the last page, look at the number, and then take the report and put it in their desk. And I was sitting at a client's office here in, in Boulder. They had been a client of ours for 10 years. And they were going through some management change. And the CEO came in. He's like, Shina, he's like, I'm so glad you're here. He's like, you wrote me this report, but what I really need from you is I need you to write me a one-page memo just telling me what are we doing well as an organization and what do we need to improve on in an organization? And I, in pure frustration, I was like, oh, Eric, if you would just turn to page 36 of that 100-page report, you would get what you needed. But it was a wake-up call for me. I was like, why is it buried on page 36? We were already doing the work. We were already providing the insight. But it was... It's not just packaging. We did change where we put it in the report, but I also think we changed a bit of how we wrote what we believe those strengths and weaknesses were to make them more actionable. It wasn't just the company suffers from excess customer concentration because our largest customer makes up 20% of the revenue. It was more the company suffers from excess customer concentration. And if they were to do XYZ, to reduce that customer concentration, it would create better predictable revenue and less risk going forward in case of a downturn or whatever the recommendation was. But we just slightly changed how we delivered the information, putting ourselves in the shoes of a, of a business owner instead of the shoes as the technician. And it just changed what we did enough to make it feel, I think, more valuable, more tangible, more actionable. It changed where you sat at the table. You were sitting on the same side of the table. That's right. But it really stemmed from a number of frustrating meetings where I'm like, oh my goodness, I've just written a hundred page report and they still don't know where to find the information that's most valuable to them. And that's something, I mean, you go like, and why did I miss? And we had been doing it that way for years, not years, decades, that, decades. You know, I think about that. And, you know, so for many of the businesses, it's hard to get fresh eyes. It's really hard. And that's where, which would thank you, Eric, whoever Eric is, for you kind of go, oh, you know, and you kind of go, it's such a low IQ, oh, and you go, oh, I could have moved that to the executive summary page, page one, takeaways. Right. It's putting yourselves in, again, in the shoes of your client and what they really need. But you also have, well, I was fortunate in that Eric told me, but in hindsight, I should have been asking all along. I should have been asking my clients all along, what's working, what's not working, what could be better? Mm -hmm. You bought the business in 12. When did you have the discussion with Eric? Was it before or after 12? It was after 12. So as a business owner talking to another business owner, your perspective is different. 
Absolutely. So you start hearing with different ears, I think. That's right. For the business owners that are out there, there are many different reasons why valuations come. Some are, are elective and some are not elective where you have a divorce or death or disability or a challenge or a disagreement in the partnership. So there's many reasons that valuations are brought to the table. So before I forget to do this, so for the guy that's out there going, man, I like what she has to say. How do I reach out to her and what's your contact or social media stuff so they can find you? So I'm on LinkedIn mm -hmm. and I post quite a bit on LinkedIn. And you can also find us on our website, which is www.quistvaluation.com. That's Q-U-I-S-T. That's right. And it's Shina, S-H-I-N-A, Culberson, no T. No T, Culberson. We're not from Texas. We're from Colorado. They do spell it with a T down in Texas. And then there's another exciting thing that you've been working on. You have software. We have software. And the software stems from... Two, fat, two experiences that I've had in my tenure here at Quist. One was I had a lot of conversations with business owners over the phone where, to be honest, the price point just was not in their budget for a full service valuation. Again, remember, I described this 100-page report over a six- to eight-week process. And the business owner was just like, I just don't need something that extensive. Can't you do something shorter? But it really just wasn't in our business model at the time. And so what I ended up doing, I was spending 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour on the phone with them, giving away or consulting with them for free, to be honest. And But it's tangible. It's fleeting, that information that I'm sharing with them. So that was, it seemed like there could be a better way for us to provide information and help business owners across all purposes and across all sizes. So that's one thing that I was, that was sitting here in the back of my head. The other observation I was making was that after 2000, the market crash of 2008, we all know this trend, business owners, baby boomers are staying with their businesses longer and longer and longer to make up for the downturn in the market. And they were not leaving their companies because they were trying to build them back up. And then we entered a frothy market and it became a seller's market. For a long time, there's been some talk about downward pressure on rising interest rates, et cetera. And at soon, I knew that seller's market was going to turn upside down and it was, there were going to be too many sellers, not enough buyers in the marketplace. And so what, again, can we do to help those people that were going to be in an inverse situation really help get them prepared in the best way possible for eventual exit of How the How to company. stand out. How to stand out. And so, again, for me, it was trying to figure out a way to lower the barriers to entry to valuation because it shouldn't – I wanted it to be more accessible. And so we – I've been working on a software platform valuation tool for the last three years that basically takes all the best practices that we do here internally, but puts it in onto an online system. So I mentioned to you that as our full service valuation process, we sit down with management teams for an hour and a half. It feels very conversational. In our minds, we know that we're going through a very structured sort of question and answer process. 
And so we just took that very structured process questioning and we put it into an online platform and we broke our questions down into six primary business value drivers. And the purpose of the tool is it returns, once a business owner goes in, answers these questions, it returns a business score to them and they can see how they're scoring across their peers of everybody who's taken the survey. Eventually, we hope to be able to break that score down by segment, life cycle of a company and in size. But right now, you can just see how you're scoring against all your peers. And then with some financial information provided by the company, we can provide them a range, an estimate of value for the company. And it literally takes 45 minutes. I think about, so I'm the business owner. And I said, yep, that sounds good. I'm going to be talking to a lending institution. And I don't think they understand. So if they go through the valuation, have you found that some of the folks that have gone through the software are using it when they talk to lending institutions? I think every lending institution is different in what they require, depending upon what the collateral is and what the type of business is. It may be sufficient for some banks and it may be insufficient for others. It depends upon their own yeah, underwriting But it's indicative criteria. at least that the owner has an idea. That's right. Which makes him different or her different than many of the other businesses which have nothing like this in place or executed. That's right. I think about your departure from corporate America to being a business owner. You know, and at some point you made the decision to buy that. And I think this will be the last question in this string of questions. But what drove you to want to be the business owner? What, what was the thought process like? And you're home talking to your spouse and go, I think I'm going to do this. What was that like? <laughs> To be honest, there was a lot of fear at the prospect of being a business owner. The idea of the weight of the success of the company on my shoulders, the well-being of all the employees, it's a heavy thing to take on. I'm very fortunate. It was Ashley, my husband, who encouraged me and said, you need to do this. You've already been, you've already had an owner's mindset in your position at your tenure with Quist. And so this is just a financial investment that you're making, but you've been making it in, in yourself this entire time anyway. So you should do it. So I really have my husband to thank who really is the one that got me over the hurdle of fear because just to do it. I ask this question frequently because a lot of folks are on the fence. Should I do this? Shouldn't I do it? And it's useful to understand the thought process to the decision. And I hear many times, I want to be a business owner. And it's kind of like, do you understand what you're asking for? I've always had an owner's mindset. I've never thought of myself restricted by a job description per se. I'm a highly competitive person. And so I, whether someone gave me the ball or not, I was just about going to take it. So same thing in corporate life, whether you want me to be running the day-to-day -day or the president of the company, I was just going to do it anyways. So it helps to be highly competitive in nature. That was primarily probably where I started. But now that I'm a business owner, I have to say I probably would never go back to a corporate job. There's so much joy in being able to really change cultures and, Decide. and make decisions and really change people's lives. There's a lot of reward in that. You actually get to get out of a meeting and decide. <laughs> What a plus. <laughs> you know, shifting gears, looking back, and this is, I typically ask these questions on every podcast, influential book or recent book that you found useful in running your company? For me, it was Simon Sinek's 
start with why. And it goes back to the story that I mentioned before. It really changed the way that we delivered our service. When we stopped focusing on what we did, business valuation, and we started focusing on why we did it to provide actionable insights to business owners to improve performance, valuation, and management decision-making, it changed how we ran our company and it changed the way and how we delivered our services and our product. The thing that strikes me in your commentary, there's a lot of folks out there that says, okay, business valuation. I'm just doing it because I have to have the vision. It's estate planning. I got to sell my business or whatever the reason is. I don't believe that there's a premise broadly held that doing a business valuation helps you run your business better. I don't think that's what most people think when they go through a business valuation. And the reality is it's probably the single most important thing. It's just good business. So I'm struggling whether to illustrate, I think, what most people think, how I think about business valuation. It can be, what I tell business owners is the reason why you want a business valuation when you don't need it is just to set a foundation of how to look at your company. Benchmark. How to look at all the different variations of your business, whether it be your operations, your management team, your customers, your strategic position in the marketplace, set a foundation and have good practices and how that those items translate into dollar value. And if you set those best practices and do them, you don't have to do them quarterly, but on an annual basis, you can start seeing the trends of where your value is going, where you're succeeding. It is a great tool for when you want to bring people into the ownership structure or when people want to leave the ownership structure. Some business owners can think of it as a little bit of an insurance plan as well, because let's be, unfortunately, I've been in many situations where people start businesses together and they don't always work out. Unfortunately, they don't always end happily, right? If they're not working out, there's some, there's lots of emotion. There's probably some hurt feelings. And it's a difficult situation. And if you start then with a business valuation, then people feel like, who's tainted in this scenario? How can you be impartial? Who are you listening to more? Are you listening to the person who wants to exit? Are you listening to the person who has to stay in the business? And all of that could be avoided if you had started with a business valuation earlier and already set the foundation of what business value is and how to look at it, it makes that scenario, a no-brainer. And it, it takes all the emotion out of it. So not that everyone's sitting here planning for a, a, uh, a shareholder just... dispute issue, but it's one of the things that we see the most often is the shareholder buyouts. And they're never easy. Good advice. You For you, allocation of time. Best allocation of time or initiative that served the company best and why? I love this question when I saw it from you. It is something that business owners ask me all the time. Shina, should I focus my time on income sheet growth or balance sheet growth? And what that means is income sheet growth is revenue growth, profitability growth. But if you think about it, it's short-term in nature. And I have to say, it's where anybody who likes sales and like closing the deal and 
winning that deal, they're attracted to that income sheet growth because people love to close sales. I love to close sales. But typically, that income sheet growth is something that can be allocated or to somebody else, a sales manager, your business development team. You can easily measure their success because those kind of metrics are kind of easily tractable. Really where business owners should be focusing their time is on balance sheet growth. And what is balance sheet growth? That is the investment that you're putting back into your company. It's the long-term return on investment that is, requires strategic thinking and long-term business objectives. And so when I think about where I spend my time, because I'm a sucker for the deal, I can't get away from it. Well, I love talking to clients and I love solving problems and I want to work with them so badly that I, it's hard for me to get out of the business development and quote unquote sales role. But I personally spend about 20% of my time on income sheet growth and the remainder of my time on balance sheet growth, that long-term strategic thinking and vision for the company. And it's a hard balance to achieve. And I will be honest, I did not start there. We talked about, do I have a business coach? And I have a business coach. And I've been a Vistage member now for about seven years. And when I started, I was 99.9% .9 in the business. I could not get out of it. And it's taken a long time to get there. It's conscientious. I have to remind myself on a daily basis, where is the best use of my time? And how can I put other mechanisms in place to incentivize other people within the organization to drive that income sheet growth so I can focus on the long-term balance you know, sheet. I think about if we're all into, I want the reward for my effort on the sales, you can tell it's right now. Mm -hmm. And you go, and I'm working on the balance sheet growth. And you go, well, that's a three to five-year reward. And you go, but I want this one, the one that I can see this week, next week, instead of next year and the following year. It's a challenge. It is a challenge. To get to train, <laughs> to get over that, that need, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be really interested in what you say for the most unusual habit or what others may consider out of the ordinary that's helped you or your company most and why. Most people that know me well know me for the fact that I'm a boxer and that I go to the boxing gym. And that's right, I get to release all my tension, aggravation, and irritation on a punching bag or every Friday on my husband because my husband goes with me every Friday to the boxing gym and we get in the ring and we put the headgear on and we put the mouth gear in and put the boxing gloves on and go through our own version of marital therapy every Friday. <laughs> <laughs> and for the folks you know that are listening, you're tall and willowy and thin. And I'm thinking, God, I'm glad you do that in the gym and not here. <laughs> <laughs> and you have, you're an athlete in your background. You were in martial arts also. I'm sensing a trend here. <laughs> that I like to hit things? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for me, so here's the way that I got into boxing is I was asked to do a charity boxing match. For people who live here in Colorado, there is a Denver Startup Week and there's a Boulder Startup Week. And three years ago for Boulder Startup Week, my boxing gym, the Corner Boxing Club, agreed to take some entrepreneurs who are stressed out, sitting behind a desk, a thousand percent focus on their company, but really tense, high pressure situations. Take these entrepreneurs, put them through three months of training, and then 
put them against quote-unquote money people. So VCs, bankers, professional service providers, and they would also go through a three-month training program. And at the end of Boulder Startup Week, we would match men and women together and they would do this charity boxing match where we would raise funds. Is it still going on? It still goes on. And so that's how I originally got into it. And when I first started, if anybody who lives here in Boulder knows everybody works out and everyone's in good shape and everybody eats healthy. And you're like, well, how hard can it be? But it's a fascinating sport once you get into it because it's a, it really is a thinking man's sport. There is so much strategy involved in terms of punches and punch count and defense that obviously there's a lot of aggression and irritation and you can just wail and get that piece out of it. But you really have to be on your toes and think as well, which is why I love the sport because you can't just sit there and think you're going to win on completely brute force. You have to have some strategy as well. So it's not a sport. I remember sitting on my grandfather's lap and, and as a young girl and watching Muhammad Ali, and I never would have thought that I would box today. <laughs> I just think it's the metaphor is just awesome. And I think about for the folks and clearly between the entrepreneurs and the VCs, that must have been an interesting series of bouts. So no access to grind in there, I am sure. So over the past few years, belief or protocol that you've established in the company that's most impacted the company? The one protocol that we do is we have a grading system and we look at all of our, we look at what we do. Anytime we want to change what we do or improve what we do, we just have a grading system within the organization. And we just give ourselves very small goals. I tell the team, if we think this issue is a C, let's just get it to a C plus. Let's not worry too much about what perfect looks like. Let's just bring it one step, what we can do today to make it a C plus. So I work with a whole team of analysts that love nothing but tons of information. The more information, the better. And what I've observed, and I think it's not just my analysts, I think it's being an analyst in general, is that people, analysts, very analytical people can get bogged down in this concept of perfection and needing more and more and more information. And we have to be in a realm of working with imperfect information and continue, but still moving the ball forward. So instead of worrying about having 100% perfect information to get to a 100% perfect answer, let's just deal with what we have in front of us to move the ball forward one step. Right. And so that's what we do as an organization. Like, what can we do just to move the ball forward one step? We may not ever get to perfect. We may not ever have all the information that we need to be perfect, but we can just move the ball forward because in it, it's a big fight against that sort of analytical mindset. It's not an easy thing to do. It sounds simple, but it creates a lot of discomfort. Analysis paralysis, big time. That's right. I can remember a million years ago when I was in the military, they said, we have really good news. We're going to be able to download all this satellite information right to your unit. And I go, that's data, not intel. I don't need data. I need intel. And I think about minimum viable product. Can you get it out the door? And can they act on it? And if it was 100% right, it would only be 100% right for that moment. And then it changed. And then it's measurable. I like that. Advice that you'd offer to a new business owner or CEO that's assuming that role for the first time, what would you say to him? So the one advice, or these are kind of my favorite conversations to have. So this is why I think it's, I like talking about 
this idea, but my advice is to start with the end in mind. So what does the exit look like? And again, it's because, and I'm guilty of it as business owners, we are so much in our business. It's hard to lift our head up, survey the landscape and really understand what is the end goal that I'm trying to attain. And it's a great question to ask business owners upfront in the very beginning because decisions will be different depending upon what that answer is. For business owners that run a family-owned business where legacy is important, the decisions that they make along the way within their organization are going to be different than that business owner who's looking to sell to a third party and is looking to maximize value. And not that culture doesn't matter, but maybe legacy doesn't matter as much. So all those decisions along the way are going to be different depending upon what the end goal is. And so understanding what the end looks like is important for making decisions today within your business. Couldn't agree more. Most common misconceptions about your role as president of this company. I think I'm going to say this and most people are going to be like, (laughs) that is so not true. I think the reality, I think the misconception is that I like to make all the decisions as the CEO. And I feel like I'm in a position where I have to make a lot of decisions, but I don't want to make all of the decisions. And so I try to work on creating an environment where I solicit opinion and ideas so that they're not just mine. We are already in an organization and we already do work where lots of perspective and differing opinions are valued. But I think a lot of times people look and they're like, oh, well, you're the owner, you're the CEO, you should make all the decisions. And then the last thing I really want is to make all the decisions. I want to have buy-in. And I think that is a common misconception with lots of business owners. Looking back over time in the military, the really good hallmark of a good unit is it would function as though the leader wasn't there the same way. So you couldn't tell if he was there or not there or she was there or not there. It's a little bit more challenging in the business community because you don't have the hierarchy of training and the expectation. That's right. So very similar in that respect. Over the past few years, would or should you have said no to and why? We <laughs> talked about this already. We did talk about this. I am a people pleaser. And so it's very, very, very hard for me to say no, whereas I should have said a no a lot more than I should have. My husband often looks at me and says, you know, not one, I don't know any person that can put that much on their to-do list and really expect to have all that happen in a single day. (laughs) He's like, he has to remind me, you are in charge of your own time. And it is a lesson hard learned to be more proactive about managing my own calendar and learning to say no. I'm still a a student. (laughs) For you, day-to-day operations of the company, people will have either a routine or self-talk that keeps them going. What's that routine or self-talk that you have going on between your ears to keep you going? The routine or self-talk. Because we talked about that this morning and I got here and you were boxing this morning. And so for you, clearly being athletic is a key component of what you do and being competitive It is. I mean, I think that my self-talk has, a lot of it has to do with don't let perfection get in the way. It has, we as business owners, or I as a business owner, want to be able to not make decisions based on fear. 
right? I promised myself that. It was about a year ago. I felt like I was the tail on the dog. I was just not, I didn't feel in control. I'm going to stop making decisions based on fear. And I'm going to start making just small, proactive decisions and keep just move the ball forward and not get bogged down by perfection. I am an analyst. I've been an analyst my entire life. So when I talk about the culture of the organization and we as analysts get bogged down by this idea of perfection and wanting perfect information, I'm subject to it. So that's my self-talk. I have to continually tell myself, just make a decision, just move the ball forward with the best information that you can and know that learning quickly, iterating often is a good thing but it's not always innate. That's kind of what I have to add this person on my shoulder. Just move forward. Just keep moving. For you, a quote that you might find meaningful or one that you use frequently? The quote that I use that I say probably most often, and a lot of people that know me will hear me say this, is that leadership is an attitude, not a position. I share this with my children. I share this with my employees. I share this with my peers because I believe that Titles and position don't mean much to me. It's more about attitude and what you want to accomplish with the time that you have in a certain situation. And that is what I value. And that's what I try to teach my kids, my employees, and everybody I'm around. Well said. Last one. If I was to talk to your colleagues and ask them what you're best at, what would they say and how do you utilize that on a daily basis? My skills lie are taking in a lot of disparate information and creating a storyline with that information. And it's something that I've tried to impart in the culture of the firm. So for example, part of our process for valuation is we have these valuation meetings where the analysts have they've run their model, they've done their management interview, and they come in and they present their findings to myself and the director of valuation services. And so how we start is before I even see a number, I want the analyst to share with me, what are the three themes of this company that you're going to tell me right now that I should see integrated in every assumption and every methodology that you've decided is the right approach to take for this valuation? So for example, this is, again, it's all about breaking down the noise and the thousands of pieces of individual detail and trying to create a storyline and a big picture of what's happening. So for example, if an analyst said to me, Shina, when we went out to this company, we know that their business objective is to actually make themselves obsolete. They're actually putting every bit of money back into innovation to create this new product because they realize that the industry that they're operating within with their product line, the obsolescence is, is high and the market opportunity is small or not small, but short. And so they believe that they have to put all this money back into innovation. So when you see that, this company is probably not, I mean, from profitability perspective, probably isn't making any money because they're putting all this money back in R&D and expenses to build up the future product lines and services of the company. So when we look at value, 
we look at profitability would be a metric, but it's not the only thing that we're looking at because we're looking at the long-term investment that they're putting back into the company, what the future opportunity is and how realistic that is and how long it's going to take them to get there. So it's all about creating a story with the valuations. And that's what happens in my mind too, is I take in lots of information and I try to break it down into digestible storylines. When a business owner says to me, well, what do you think about my business? I can say, oh, well, this is already what we do. We talk about your company with, as a storyline. We have themes that we talk about. It's also what we do with the analysts because it helps them step away from the numbers and look at the big picture and think about, okay, also if they have to go, if they're going to talk to the business owner, what are they going to say? And so I think that is one of my strengths. And it's one of the pieces of process that I've integrated into the company that, again, wasn't necessarily embedded in the culture of the firm before I took over in 2012, but something that was just helped me remember all these different companies that we're in touch with. And, and now I can write, oh, yeah, that's, this company has that theme, and this company has that theme, and this company has that theme going on. So it helps me keep them no, organized yeah, in my context. Rolodex. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, in you know, my I, head. The storytelling methodology, storytelling was how knowledge was passed for, for many eons before the written word came on board. Part of the premise behind the podcast That's is right. storytelling and can you impart audibly what you have between your ears. That's right. Yeah. And I try to do that with, I sit on the board for the Colorado Thought Leadership Forum. And whenever we're thinking about even just like, what to do with the organization. Like, what's going to be the story of the organization? Like, who are we? What is our mission? Like, how are we going to get there? What are our themes? And it's just how I like to think about business strategy is creating a storyline about how you want to live that business strategy. Well, Shina, this has been fun. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing with us all your wisdom. Well, thanks for having me. This has been fun. Yes, ma'am. Take care. Thank we you. We will talk soon.